This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of Remnant Radio. In today's program, I've got uh, Scott McKnight with us. You might have seen Scott on a previous video that we've done talking about the King Jesus gospel. In this video, we're talking about his new book, A Church Called Tove. I say it's a new book. It's new to me. Uh, Me and Michael just read it. It's a wonderful book. We're going to talk about toxic cultures, narcissist leaders. It's going to be an interesting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Welcome, everyone, to today's program. Uh, For whatever reason, I am not seeing tons and tons of... uh, There it is. It just updated. I was like, there's no one viewing this content at this moment. My software was updating, apparently, as we were going live. So uh, this is going to the right place. Praise God. Uh, Today, we're talking about uh, the the, the new book, uh, A Church Called Tove. Uh, It's a book about uh, what good Christian church culture looks like, what toxic church culture looks like, and how to get from point A to point B, how to identify... If you're in one of those camps, uh, it's going to be a really exciting program today. But I want to remind you, uh, in chapters in pro- in in books, I've got um, way too many manuscripts at publishers right now, and they are contacting. I get something almost every day. I got two today of little things that I had to check in the, in, ma- in various manuscripts. So, but my big project going on right now is a is a series of books called the Everyday Bible Study. And it's an attempt to revive uh, personal Bible study and group Bible study so that groups uh, will devote themselves to a book in the Bible uh, rather than to the most recent book that everybody's reading uh, from the top lists of uh, Christian books. So my project right now is is, um, I'm working on the Book of Romans. Uh, this is um, not an easy book to reduce to 40,000 words of commentary. No doubt. But, uh, and, uh, but I'm having a lot of fun because I've, I've written on Romans before, reading Romans backwards. So it's kind of fun to turn it into a different format. It's my project. Okay. That's great. Can you tell us a little about your book, the one that we're talking about today, Church Called Tove? Uh, and again, I'm, I don't teach New Testament, so I don't know how exactly to pronounce uh, Hebrew words or Greek words. So I'll let you dive in and explain uh, uh, why the inspiration for the book. Uh, I'd love to hear y- your, your thoughts, your inspirations of, of why you even put this thing together. Yep, you got it right, Josh. Tove is the right pronunciation. Um, although uh, you may have heard Matzel Tav, um, which is sort of contemporary hebrew yiddish type uh, pronunciation but okay i was um i was involved in the willow creek story partly because we attended the church 
for 10 years, partly because my daughter uh, attended it for 20 years and was a member and her husband was on staff at Willow Creek. And partly because I was a seminary professor who is asked by students all kinds of questions about what's going on in the church. So the story about Willow Creek came out and uh, I read it that night when the Chicago Tribune published the story. And from that point on, I would say for the next four months, I was asked questions almost daily through emails, text messages, messenger, phone calls, speaking places, people asking questions, students asking questions, friends talking about it. And over time, I put together, after about a month, I had put together, um, I don't know, several pages of um, sort of my thoughts about Willow Creek, sort almost like thinking I was going to post this somewhere, but I didn't do it for that. I just wanted to put my thoughts down. And eventually I posted this at the end of June of that year, a few months after the Willow Creek story broke. And in my blog posts about Willow Creek, I used the word goodness. I said, our churches need more goodness. And the number of people who wrote to me about this or who commented to me about it or who asked for more about it led me to start thinking about it and talking about it and going through Old Testament references to Tove and New Testament references to good, which appears in several different forms uh, and different words. And uh, I began to teach in my classes um, what I called a, a culture of goodness or a Tove culture. And the um, what, what really kind of surprised me is the students latched on to this word Tove and began to use it for everything. For instance, like the Cubs had a Tove game or that was a Tove lecture or <laughs> someone made a answered a question or asked a question in class and someone said, that's a Tove question. So I noticed that they were using this word Tove. Okay, so this is just classroom for me. And a publisher asked me to meet with them to talk about publishing a book on this or about Willow Creek. And I said, no, I will not write a book about Willow Creek because I'm not a church historian and they will never give me access to the minutes and records and meetings of deacon meetings and elders meetings and all these different leadership teams they have. I said, I'd never get access. So I, I, I can't do that. So we parted ways with this offer. Um, in the process, I began to work a little bit more on Tove because I was teaching it in my classes. And I was thinking I had some interesting ideas. And I came upon a book about German pastors and how they responded to accusations that they were involved in the Holocaust and in the, you know, the eradication of six million Jews, that they became complicit. And I was shocked at the number of German pastors or the story that is told by Matthew Hakanas in his book, A Church Divided, I was shocked at the number who said that they had nothing to do with it. And I just couldn't believe that they couldn't own up to some complicity in this. It was more painful to be complicit than it was um, to maintain their own narrative and thus live in a false, in a false narrative. 
So I began to read this book, and as I did, I began to notice patterns in this book that were consistent with what was going on in the Southern Baptist Church, what was going on with the Roman Catholics, uh, what was going on in some of the mega churches in the United States. And I jotted down, I think at the time I had six false narratives. All through this process, my daughter, Laura Berenger, was pestering me to, to write a book about this. And I kept saying, no, no. And then uh, at Christmas, we were together and I told her, I said, I have an idea for a book. It's it's um, based on the redemptive idea of Tov, but also, and this is probably the key thing for me, is uh, that the false narratives would form a chapter and we would counter false narratives with truth telling and try to show that the, that we can map a more redemptive future through this word Tov. So we met with a publisher. They offered us a contract. And the book is in your hands, I think. A church called Tov. And the rest Forming is Tov history. Forming a culture. The rest is Tov history. That was a really Tov <laughs> explanation mostly, mostly, there. <laughs> mostly, mostly a Tov history. I get people who get irritated about the book, but... It's the way it is. If you don't want people okay. to get irritated, don't write books. <laughs> Noted. So, <laughs> so you mentioned six false narratives. I feel like we should camp out there for a moment. Six false narratives and how you would counteract those with truth telling. So could you dig into that a little bit? Is this are you talking about the circle of Tove from your book? No, and the, no the false the false narratives are discredit the critics. You know, one of the one of the nasty characteristics in a toxic culture is a pastor or leaders who will tell stories about other people and give them a narrative about that other person that ultimately discredits that person. And then these people feel like because they're insiders and the pastor told them mm -hmm. this, that they're in the know, but they've actually done some very serious damage and frequently it's it's lying or at so least like the equivalent story. of oh that person was just bitter or you yeah. know they just had a different vision or just making up a story that that reinterprets history yeah i mean here's a common one uh, when when they're criticizing women oh they're just emotional right they're just giving you know so as if men are so rational that they don't have emotions or something as if men are not emotional. Oh, well. So then the second one was demonizing critics. You know, you if you don't get the response you need, you ramp up the response by uh, turning these people into evil, and they demonize them. A third very common approach, this one happens so much it's sickening to me, is to spin the story. And I'll just give one that's pretty innocent. Uh, because I could give you plenty of stories that are, are not innocent. And that is someone gets fired and they announce from the platform that the Lord has called them somewhere else. I mean, that's just oh not gosh. the truth. That's, that's just all not the, the time. That is all, all the, the time. time. So often. Yeah. The Lord called them somewhere. The Lord, the Lord's pushing them out of the nest, maybe. Yeah, oh, man. That's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's a very condescending one. That does happen, though. A fourth one is to gaslight the critics, and that is to attack the critics in such a way 
that you attempt to destabilize their perception of what happened. So that, you know, let's just say uh, a man, a pastor, content, a woman has made an accusation against a pastor for sexual, um, let's say, inappropriate behavior. And the, the pastor then turns on the woman to say, she came after me. She was approaching me all the time. She was calling me. She was texting me. She was uh, using my name all the time. And th- then this, this makes the woman wonder, was I coming on to him? I didn't think I was. I never was. But now I wonder if I was. And so that it, it, that's gaslighting. It's a very common technique. And all the psychologists have studied this. Another one, and this is very common when a pastor cannot get his way uh, through simple truth-telling, they make, uh, the, the perpetrator makes himself the victim. This is called DARVO, which is, um, is a flipping of the script so that the perpetrator convinces his audience, most of the time this is a male, convinces the church uh, that he's the victim of people who are lying about him and gossiping and they're, trying to they're out to get me they're colluding yes. against me you, yes. you you open chapter one with this quote from uh i think it's wade mullen i think is how you pronounce his name an organization or culture that perpetuates abuse will question the motives of those who ask questions make uh, uh the discussion of problems the problem uh, uh condemn those who condemn and silence those who break silence um it, that uh, and this this last one goes uh, and descend upon those who dissent like that summarizes unhealthy culture and I think it's, what's really odd is after reading this book it I also passed this book on to some other people who'd gone through some some really unhealthy church stuff and it like it 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 gives people a voice like they don't even understand what they've gone through they don't they yeah. don't comprehend like oh that was just not healthy i just like ah oh, you know i went to this church for a while and and there was some good stuff and there was some bad stuff uh but man uh after reading this book you go wait a second like i i'm now reinterpreting history i'm now re i'm understanding i'm i'm getting a voice to to why i felt uncomfortable of why things were pushed this way like we had three pastors leave and they were all just randomly called to different places. How does that make sense? Or uh, there's just a lot in this book that I think contextualizes and I think gives voice to people who've gone through pain. So I highly recommend it uh, to people who have, you know, experienced some kind of church abuse. Uh, and I, and I recommended it to a whole church staff recently. I think it's a, it's a very, very good book. Um, let, let's, there was one, there's a sixth narrative, false narrative though. Aren't oh, we just, through well, five, yeah, five, I, I'm the victim. I think we have, I think we have eight. Okay, I'll oh, give them, I'll eight. give these next one. Silence the truth, you know, create NDAs so that people can't even tell their story. Right. Suppress the truth and then finally issue fake apologies. And mm. this What's a fake uh, apology? A fake apology is when you make people think that you are apologizing, but you're I'm actually, sorry you felt that way. <laughs> yes, you're actually explaining yourself rather than telling the truth of what you did. I, you know, I crossed the line. You know, the pastor says that he crossed the line with this woman and we had an affair 
and I need to tell the truth. Not, um, I was exploring, I was having trouble in my life. I was, you know, all those things can be true, but it ends up making people feel bad for the pastor mm. instead of uh, the pastor owning up to what, what was done. Okay, Excellent. so tell the truth. So these are all false narratives that happen after the crisis. So if you're in a church, there's a crisis and the pastor responds in these ways or the elders respond in these ways. You can say, ah, okay, this is a toxic church. By the way, they're handling this crisis. But usually churches aren't in crisis. Usually it's just normal church doing church stuff. How do you tell if your church is toxic when there's not some kind of story that's being spun and crisis that's being managed? When it's just everyday church life, is there a way to tell, or do you actually kind of need the crisis in order to identify a toxic culture? Well, Michael, I wish I had a litmus, a piece of litmus paper that we could dip into a church culture that, in a cup and pop it out and say toxicity or a color of toxicity. It's really, really difficult to see this because churches are masters of the Sunday morning service. And the Sunday morning service is a performance on a platform that creates an image. It creates a persona in a sense of the pastor and of the people who are on that stage. And we begin to think that that's what these people are actually like all the time. And so that's where 95% of the people in a church live. That's, that's what they see. Okay. And so, but that's not that's not reality. That's not so, the true reality. So, it's only insiders who actually see these things and can do something about it. Unless there is a big crisis, of course, and then there's an investigation. But if if it seems healthy, you won't know unless you know somebody from the inside who's willing to talk, or you know somebody who's left who's willing to talk. Okay, well, on that, would you say that this is something, and sorry, Josh, I'm going a lot of times in a row here, but uh, Josh and I usually try to trade off and be, and be Christianly. But, um, An egalitarian <laughs> in your own Yeah, I mean, I mean sometimes Michael really likes to exert his authority without permission uh, and, you know, and, it's and that, kind yeah, of apologize, a, but then keep on doing the same thing. I mean, it's... I'm a, I am a narcissistic leader, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, he's okay. Josh, all these jokes, I actually lost my question. Okay. No, you didn't. Okay, I can fill in, bro. No worries, because Go I was going to ask, because you mentioned that, narcissism. That was the Lord's kind discipline. <laughs> so I was going to ask about narcissism because you mentioned uh, the two early signs is uh, narcissism and then like fear through intimidation. Oh, no, sorry. Uh, uh, like uh, power based fear. Like how do I how do I exert fear over people uh, as a, a means of manipulating and controlling them in your book? I'd be curious if you could kind of just define narcissism for us and describe like what that looks like in the early stages of that so that people can kind of define and, and, and see maybe maybe they're even in that context now. Yeah, those are those are you know I've uh, we've been asked this question so many times. In fact, when we originally wrote the book, we just had seven traits. We didn't have those early two, but our editor said, "What do you think are the two most important?" I said, "Well, uh, those first two: narcissism and and power through fear." Okay, so uh, narcissism, uh, Josh, Michael. Let me just say this: that everybody who performs on a platform on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, is 
on a narcissism scale. Uh, uh, Chuck DeGroot has a book, When Narcissism Comes to Church, and I was on his podcast or he was on mine. I don't remember. Uh, but he said all pastors are on the narcissism scale. And he said, so are professors, Scott. So you and I are on this scale. So it's there. And they Certainly. are on that on that stage because they have some of the marks that would lead to a narcissistic personality disorder, which would be uh, very severe. But the fundamental characteristic of a narcissistic disorder is a sense of grandeur or a sense of spectacular that their next book is going to be the, you know, is going to be the next Rick Warren's book or the, the next sermon is going to be, I won't use any more names here. Um, the next sermon is going to be okay. the greatest sermon ever preached. And they, they have that sense of, of, of grandeur and greatness about them, and they desire that. And it is coupled with the fact that they're profoundly self, uh, self-centered and very weak and fragile in their own ego, and they have an incapacity to empathize with the weakness of other people. So um, a narcissistic leader has utterly no feelings about firing someone. In fact, they may feel self-righteous or righteous about it, that they did the right thing to preserve their organization or their church. So that's those are marks of narcissism that are fundamental. Now, the more narcissistic you are, the more your brain loses its capacity to empathize with other people. And I think that one of the classic characteristics, attributes, and virtues of a good pastor is empathy and compassion. And it's the opposite of what the narcissist develops. So to me, uh, those that's one of the major toxic signs and it's very difficult to get access to these people, but they want to be treated special. They are treated special. They surround themselves with people who will, who will protect their specialties, their specialisms, the fact that they are special, and they create policies that keep them from being seen by other people. Now, Caitlin Beatty has a new book, Cele- uh, Celebrities for Jesus, in which she's basically arguing that celebrity is social power without proximity. And that is one of the signs of a narcissism, a narcissist as well. Now, the second, the second characteristic is power through fear. Um, a, the, a toxic leader makes people around them feel like they need his approval and that if they and and they fear not having that approval and when fear enters into a relationship of two people the relationship has gone south and has lost its christian nature if the christian nature of a proper relationship is love Power through fear is the opposite end of a proper Christian relationship. So I think we need to look for people who are creating an image of themselves of greatness and 
who who create a world around them where people want their approval and wonder if they have their approval. And they're the sort of people often who don't give approvals very easily because every time they do give approval, it's an attack on their own self. So they're only going to give approval to people who are enhancing their own status and glory. Now I said a lot there. So uh, that's but it's scary. It's scary. Let, let me just ask it's like really follow up questions because if I if I have like Michael, I, his approval matters to me, and I think my approval matters to him, and I think just typical human persons don't like being disapproved of. In fact, it's the reason why there's a lot of people not on YouTube is because this. What did you say? You said yeah. something about if you want disapproval, write a book. You know, people will yeah, they right. will throw shade. So and nobody wants disapproval. So that in itself doesn't create unhealth. That is not a sign of unhealth, but there's something else there. You said fear of disapproval. Um, can you again? Can you maybe contextualize that for us a little bit? Because that sounds like such a natural thing that everyone has. Children have it. You know, they meet a, a kid on the playground, they dislike them and don't give them approval, and they don't feel great about that. That seems like a, a pretty natural thing. It'd be pretty hard to detect, you know, a fear, intimidation kind of culture if disapproval is something that we all fear you know, by nature. Okay. I, I don't know how to put this all together. I, I think, I think what I'm saying is right, but yes, it is true that we all want approval. From, we want approval from God. It's wired into us. I think that we want approval from our spouses and people we like, um, and we get it. So um, th that's part of a, a normal, healthy, loving relationship, but there are some kinds of leaders have the capacity by their judgmentalisms to create a culture in which the people around them want their approval, long for that approval, fear that disapproval, and that pastor, that leader uh, routinely reminds people of their status with that person. That's the things that I think we should be we should be looking for. So status and value is like the added paradigm, the added lens necessary to see it. It's not just I don't want disapproval and I want approval because everyone has that, but it's like my value, my worth to the whole is determined by this one guy's approval. That's a that's a big difference. Yeah, that, that and that's true and and it and these people get status by being in the inside circle of that of that pastor. I mean, I've had 25 Christian leaders, sociopastors, pastors, you know, people climbing the ladder in churches, tell me how they felt when they got a job at this mega church or that mega church. They said, every time I drove up, to the into the parking lot every time i entered the room the building every time i walked by people to my office to my cubby hole i felt like i was really special because i was hired by this amazing church who is led which is led by this unbelievable pastor and i'm at the center of god's moral universe right now that's that sort of feeling is not uncommon with a lot of people. And when that is your feeling, uh, I think 
I think we're we're walking very close to a deep chasm of uh, of a of a toxic church. Okay. Um, one of the things you said earlier is that pastors are all on the scale, as are seminary professors. Anyone who's on a stage, help us understand what that means. Does that mean anyone? Every pastor is a narcissist, like no matter what, or do you mean, are you saying that there's something inherent in the person who is on that stage that drove them to that stage? That's not a God thing. It's actually a sinful nature, narcissism thing that drove them to that place. Or are you saying just by being in that place in the spotlight, you are setting your sinful nature, fleshly desire for spotlight and approval. You're setting yourself up for failure if you don't if you don't put some safeguards up. That like help us understand what you mean by you're on the. Well, scale. I'd say I would say a lot of those things. I think you 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 uh, dodged in and out of really important topics there. Um, first of all, I would say this. The only people who are going to get on a platform and perform weekly with sermons and tell people what God wants them to do are going to be on the scale, according to Chuck DeGroot. I think that's right. And if it's not right, I think pastors should think it's right because they should be alert to the danger. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is it is absolutely true that narcissistic personalities long for platforms. So they will find themselves on platforms. They will work to get on platforms and they will work to get on as big a platform as they can get on. So um, the mega church in the United States is the big platform for these preachers. I think that would be one of the major ones. And so you will have a higher incidence of narcissistic traits in pastors on these big platforms, and you will pastors in Boone, Iowa, or in um, some obscure village in Kansas, um, you you will find that um, uh, those those pastors are not as uh, intoxicated with narcissism. And I would say this, Michael. So you know, you're exploring this question from different angles, and I thought it was really helpful just listening to you there. I think I would, I mean, it is true that the platform exacerbates the personality weaknesses in some ways. It also strengthens the strengths of that person. And so I think that people who have residual narcissistic tendencies can experience a growth of those narcissistic tendencies in ways that can become very dangerous and toxic in a church culture. So I would say narcissistic people um, long for the platform and people on that platform will discover that narcissistic dimensions of their personality um, are in danger of developing. And so therefore, yes, safeguarding uh, a narcissist needs, Plutarch wrote about this many years ago, and it's an amazing essay. It's a little boring, but that's the kind of writing in the at that time. Um, how to tell a friend from a flatterer. And I think that narcissistic pastor, all pastors need people who will speak the truth to them 
and they will speak the truth in safety, and it will be accountable type uh, speaking. Um, some pastors will tell you they have accountability partners, but nobody knows what's going on except that inside circle and all kinds of toxic things can be going on. So I, I do believe there need to be safeguards, but the only true safeguard is a toe of character rather than any kind of accountability structures or even friendships where people can speak frankly and not just be flatterers. So I, I think it's tove people on platforms who can do our best work. And it, so I, I want to go back to character as the foundational issue that has to be addressed. And that, and that makes sense. Cause I mean, you could have the best church staff, the best church policies, the best church programs, and then somehow you still have, you know, a predator in the children's department or, you know, uh, a malicious narcissist at the top of the food chain. I mean, you can put all the systems in place. You know, I, I was talking to a staff recently and I was telling them like, you know, uh, if you have, uh, every policy in place, you know, you could have a, you know, uh, accountability software on your phone that, you know, monitors every website you're on. But if you don't tell anybody, you can still be having an affair if you hide it well. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, character is what's going to ring true because you can always find ways around policies. You can find your way around rules and regulations and structures and organizations. You know, you could have the, 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 the most, uh, balanced, ecclesiology when it comes to a plurality of elders or like you said accountability partners that are super involved in your life but at some point in time sinners are really good at hiding sin like that's that's something that we're we're very good at doing um yep. and and these um and these leaders that we're talking about um are really skilled per, in at the level of persuasion they're um one of these uh, people we talked to, uh, that we talked about in the book um on these pastors, someone told me that he was always five steps ahead of everybody else in the room. And that's something that I would say is fundamental to recognize. Accountability will not do it. People can find a way to do what they want. I know, I know, I know one leader who told me that a certain well-known fallen pastor could not have done that because he didn't have time to do that. I said, boy, are you naive? You are really naive if you think the <laughs> pastors are that busy. If they want to have sex with someone, they are they can find the time and the place. Yep. yep, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I think we're only as accountable as we want to be. And you have to choose to be accountable because you can only you you can tell a little bit to this guy and a little bit to that guy and a little bit to that guy and no one gets the whole story. And I've seen that kind of thing happen all the time. Um, Let me I, ask I, you I wanna, this, Michael. Okay, uh-huh. you, you guys work in churches. Yep. Uh, I, I think the per- person with a tove character does not need accountability structures. And those who need them probably have a character that is not conducive to, to doing it right. In other words, I am not persuaded that accountability structures are going to do that much for people. Yeah. I, okay. you know, I think the, like good ecclesiology is better than bad ecclesiology, but you can get, a corrupt leader in a church with like the proper yeah. structure. And so, oh, yeah. you know, there can be a technical plurality, but it's only technical. And so I, I think this speaks to the same thing in that you can have uh, somebody who has all the right accountability structures, 
but they find the loopholes in the structure if they don't have the character to actually live that out. Sure. So, I mean, for right. me personally, I just Lovely. try to live First John 1, 7, to walk in the light because I know that whatever is dark inside of me, it it if I get it out into the light, it heals, it's refined, it's transformed. And so I I do try to be really diligent about having close friends with whom I share all my secrets. And one of the things I tell my church all the time is if you can't talk about it, it owns you. And uh, and so we, we need to be able to talk. But at the same time, if you just have like this rigid structure, but not say actual friendships and actual, um, if you don't have the character and the desire to walk in the light, you can have all the structure in place that you want and it doesn't make a difference. But, but the structure is trying to say. One, one of the, we yeah. don't want to be so pragmatic that we go, well, the church structure doesn't matter at all because if it doesn't That's do right. anything, if the Bible says do this, then you do this, right? Like, and, and I think that there may be some pragmatism to the structure in that I think good, healthy church structures can mitigate problems when they arise in a way that unhealthy church structures have a difficult time resolving. I mean, if you, if you really have a CEO pastor who has un you know, uh, unmitigated authority and control over the local church and is found in a big scandal and there's no eldership, there's no board that can keep him accountable and remove him, then he just stays in power forever. So uh, I would say that those healthy church structures are there to mitigate sin when it happens, not necessarily to prevent it, because the only thing They're that just prevents not sin is crucifixion, right? Like, I just got to kill that thing. Uh, faithful repentance, living living for Christ, to Christ, unto Christ, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I would say that they have a role, they have a place, but probably they're not going to, if we look at those things as if they're the mode, they're the thing that, that's going to remove sin. I just think of that, was it that passage in Colossians? The, the, the do not taste, oh, do not handle, do not touch. Colossians they might have too. a... Yeah, they might have they, an appearance, they have the uh, appearance, of appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in restraining sensual indulgence. Colossians chapter two. So basically, yeah. man-made man-made rules aren't going to do it. And Paul's solution is set your hearts and minds on things above, where right. Christ is seated in the heavenly realms. Colossians three. So, uh, well, well, let's let's come back to this, uh, Doctor McKnight. You had the way you talked about specific texts, and I've seen this in abusive churches before is, you know, a victim makes something public and they are thrown under the bus for violating Matthew chapter 18, which says if your brother sins against you, go talk to them. And then and then if they don't listen to you, bring somebody else along with you, then your elders, then the whole church. And there, there's this whole process aimed at restore the brother and like, hey, you just made this public. You didn't talk to me first. You talk about how Matthew 18 is weaponized in order to uh in order to silence the victim victim i'd like for you to talk about matthew 18 in the context of toe versus toxic cultures and then maybe a follow-up uh, and maybe a second question after that we'll, we'll come maybe to first corinthians 6 which i thought was also really fascinating your take on it and that is not that it was like a fascinating novel like unbiblical take i'm not saying it that way i'm saying in the context of this culture where we have so many toxic cultures that are, are toxic churches in the news and people are getting sued. And that's what first Corinthians six talks about. And so you said that's another way that a victims get silenced is this passage about lawsuits. So Matthew 18, first Corinthians six, but let's start with Matthew 18. Well, here's, here's the issue. I mean, I, I think uh, Matthew 18 is, is truly has been weaponized. I, I agree with that. I think I probably say that. Um, 
and it's been it's almost been turned into some kind of magic bullet and uh, i talked to a guy who totally believes in this about every situation and i'm thinking all right um let's let's ask two questions the first question i want to ask is who is appealing to matthew 18. all right it's almost always the one who is being accused because they don't want the story to go public. I am now nervous about this. The second thing is, who has more power? Now, in this question, increasingly churches are being called to account on this, and I think churches are foolish if they don't start paying attention to this more carefully. Um, pastors have, have spiritual power, and they can commit spiritual abuse because of their spiritual power over people who are under their care and who are under their leadership. When the person with more power is using that verse, it's a situation of power that needs to be considered. Now, let's consider the psychological impact. It is a fact that psychologists will tell you that it is profoundly dangerous and wounding and emotionally destructive for victims of abuse. I'm thinking especially of sexual abuse and especially victims of abuse when the power differential is significant with a pastor to be forced to confront that pastor and explain the sin that they committed against them and to think that there's going to be some kind of resolution. Okay, this is, this is a, a dangerous situation that has destructive impact in the church. If a woman lodges a genuine accusation against a pastor for sexual abuse, sexual inappropriateness, and I want you to know that the research shows that the, the accuracy, the truthfulness of, of women bringing accusations against men in a sexual level, a sexual sin, not spiritual abuse, is somewhere between 91 and 99% accurate. So Ooh. we better, would better you begin just, with the assumption. Can you tell us, do you have a citation? Not that I don't believe you, but I know our viewers will want to know it. Okay, it's in, okay. One of my students investigated this when she was working in, uh, in the Netherlands, and it's in the Feshrift for me, uh, that Nijay Gupta and a couple others edited. And in that book, um, I don't even know if I have a copy of it right here. I don't see one. Um, but I do have one at the top of a shelf. It's it's in that chapter by Becky Castle Miller. So I've, okay. I've looked at these these sources. Okay. Um, so let me, majority, give you, let me give you the title. Vast majority of, of accusations... <laughs> I love it. You're turning around and, and okay. looking for a book. Isn't it great to just have a library right behind you? Um, okay, living. it's called Living the King Jesus Gospel. In that book, there's a chapter okay. in which she gives the citations. Here's what I'm saying. Matthew 18 is a wise principle for dealing with interpersonal relationships of, of uh, let's just say, people who are roughly equal in power. It is, um, it is power abuse to use that in a case of sexual abuse where a perpetrator demands 
confrontation because if most women know that they're going to have to confront that pastor alone, just like Matthew 18 says, they're not going to tell anybody. And yeah. then the pastor is going to perpetrate that sin again. So let's let's change the dynamic a little bit because I, I could see how that works with sexual sin. What about, uh, you know, you've got a pastor uh, let's call him an associate pastor or a youth pastor, maybe working with a senior pastor and the senior pastor is being extremely, uh, he's extremely angry and manipulative and blows up all the time. And one day, you know, youth pastor gets canned. Um, you know, he, he goes to the senior pastors like, man, you know, I felt like maybe he doesn't have the guts to go to the senior pastor and say like, you've, you've done me wrong here. Like you've pushed me into a corner, you've you've kind of uh, you know oppressed any level of creativity or you know ministry opportunities that I've have, and now you're penalizing me for it. You know he already knows that this would blow up in his face, so he rather chooses to go tell some elders, and the elders are like, "Hey, if you haven't confronted him, you can't come talk to us yet." Like, is that also is that dynamic also consistent with the way that you're interpreting Matthew 18? There's a power dynamic difference here with the senior pastor and the youth pastor, and he's really upset, but only he's afraid of going to the senior guy because he's going to get blown up on or, you know, the story will get manipulated. Okay. How, how do you, how do you interpret that? All right. Now these situations are different. You know, every one of these situations would have to sure. be examined with some care. So I, I'm not going to just offer a general rule, but, but if it's, if it's a typical American Baptistic type church. Yes, that pastor has papal authority in that church. And Ooh, no one, I like papal authority. That was a good way of saying that. No one but, in the church is an equal. Right. I don't care. And this is my experience. And you know as well as I am that I'm right in most of these occasions, is that the elders don't even have power. Yeah, compared to that's that right. person. That's right. So in, in those situations, then I would say that that was probably spiritual abuse and should be dealt with that way, that the pastor has an anger, anger problem, his character is malformed in some way with narcissism and, past, and power and needs, needs to grow or needs to leave. Mm. Should okay. people come forward with their stories if, hey, senior pastor is abusive with the way that he's talking about this, the elders are complicit and want to cover this thing up? Should people come forward with their stories of abuse like this? Okay. <laughs> yes, of course. Yes. We, we want people to live in the light like Michael just talked about. But I think we need to do it as as righteously as possible. In other words, is there a process in place in the church, a policy of whistleblowing or being able to go to someone that's safe? Now, look, if I have to go to elders and you know the elders are, I'm dealing with, with a couple right now. And this is exactly what's going on. They, they, they are convinced that they were, uh, that one of them was spiritually abused by the pastor and by the elders who are complicit. And, they tried to talk to the elders and they got nowhere. Now, what can they do? There's not much they can do. They don't have any power left if they can't get through to the elders because there's no policy. There's no whistleblower policy. There's no structure where they can report in a safe way that would be guaranteed uh, for an in investigation of the situation that would be truly independent 
uh, and outside the structures of power and complicity they're involved. So, Josh, I think I've answered your question. I think so. No, I think I think you did that well. Okay. Well, why don't we hop to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read a few verses here and just to give our viewers and listeners a little bit of a flavor. Uh, Paul says to the Corinthians, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Are you, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels and how much more than matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to the sh to your shame. And he just kind of goes on and on. Why would you not just rather be defrauded? Uh, basically, you've already lost if you're taking your brother to court. And so some churches in their membership, and you mentioned this in your book, and, and so they'll, they'll have this built in. Well, we have an arbitration clause and don't take us to court over this and, and so on. And you say that's abusive and uh, but it also looks biblical because you have first Corinthians chapter six and you kind of wrestle through that in your book. And I'd, I'd love for our, our viewers to, to hear your take on, is it ever okay to sue our brothers and sisters given first Corinthians six seems like it's saying not to, but then you also have situations where pastors and elders are closing everything down. There's no real arbitration. I mean, can there ever be a case? So if you could just help us wrestle through those verses, it'd be great. Okay. Now let's take an extreme example. All right. A, past, a, pa a male pastor rapes a 14-year-old girl in the church. Ugh. And you have this policy in place that you can't go to the court. Okay. You better ditch that policy as fast as possible. That or you pick up, up the policy about stoning people. I mean, one or the yeah. other. Jeez, okay. please. So, all right. So uh, I, I want to take that as an extreme example. Here's the thing. The question I would ask, Michael, is, is this criminal? If it's criminal, you go to the law. The, the That's church, a good standard. I like that. The church, the church cannot be investigating crime and making judgments about crime. Uh, this, you know, so to me, this is, this is where it starts. I don't think, I think I'll quote F.F. Bruce here. You guys are probably too young to even know who he was. Oh, I F. know Bruce. Bruce was a, was oh, we've, a great we've read some Bruce. <laughs> in, his, in his living room, I asked him a question about Paul. And he said, Paul would roll over in his grave if he knew that we were converting his statements and his teachings into new laws. And, and I would say that is one of the first things. Paul's speaking about a particular situation in the city of Corinth where these people are going to court and they're hurting the reputation of the church. In our situation, if we don't go to court about rape and sexual abuse and crime that are committed inside the church, then we are going to destroy the reputation of the church. And so I think that we need to be wise. I think we need to, do, to protect the reputation of the church when we can. We don't want to intentionally to sully the reputation of the church in our community. But telling the truth does more for the good of the church than covering up the truth and hiding the truth. Amen. So if people find out that your pastor had an affair with someone, then that's the truth. And it's good that your church brought that out. Okay, yeah. And they did it and they didn't have to humiliate 
the family or anything like that. They didn't have to ruin things. But if if people find out, as they have found out in the last how many years in our churches, in all these Southern Baptist churches, that churches were hiding stories of sexual abuse of minors and young women in youth uh. groups, that they were hiding these things, it it creates cynicism in the church about, I mean, can I trust that pastor? I, I, I've said this before. I've told my Roman Catholic friend, I don't know which priests I can trust and which ones I can't. And I've told the Catholic priest this, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that. And they've said, well, I'm not sure how many uh, evangelical pastors I would trust. And I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty close with you on that one as well. So I think First um, Corinthians six has uh, has important value on the church seeking to protect its public reputation when it's appropriate. But when it's appropriate, that's not the right text. Yeah, I, I like that. In fact, I noticed in reading the passage out loud a word I hadn't caught before in this passage when it says, "If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases?" So. I think by that question, it suggests Paul's not talking about rape. He's talking about like, you know, someone took my, uh, I don't know, stack of pencils. My I mean, slanket. ridiculous, right? Somebody took my slanket. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. McKnight, do you know what a slanket is? I have no idea. It, it's, it's a phrase Josh, that we joke about. Explain? It's a slain in the spirit blanket. You know, you toss you toss a blanket. It's a slanket. <laughs> you got a good chuckle out of it. So, Dr. McKnight, that is the one thing that we taught you on this episode. We yeah, taught you that's the one thing we taught is. you. So we expect that to be in your published material here promptly. Yeah, hey, uh, I'll remember that. Why don't we, why don't we actually kind of shift gears? We're kind of getting pretty close to the time where we need to, to wrap things up because we spent a fair amount of time talking about toxic churches. And here and there, we've talked about Tove, but I, I'd really like to pivot strongly toward Tove and uh, precisely define Tove for us as it works out practically in the church, what does a Tove church look like? Okay, now we have another book at the publisher um, on uh, helping churches transform from toxic cultures to Tove culture. So we're working on this theme. But um, Tove is the word for good, goodness, and God alone is good. Everything God does is good. God wants to work in us through the power of the Spirit to yield the fruit of the Spirit that is goodness. Jesus is good, and at the end of time, Jesus will pronounce those who are in him well done, and that you could say good done, or just you, and that, that word just means tov. You, you, you know, you, you're welcome to my family. And what we did is we mapped the the marks of toxicity, and I'll, I'll say these quickly, narcissism, power through fear, uh, institution creep, false narratives, a loyalty culture, a celebrity culture, and a leadership culture. And we found the biblical alternative to these. So a Tove culture is not marked by those toxic traits. It's marked by, by it, it nurtures empathy it nurtures grace in the uh, comprehensive sense in the entire church. It puts people, their stories, their life first. It tells the truth. It nurtures justice, which we define as doing the right thing at the right time. 
It nurtures a service community where people serve one another, not for the glory they will get from it. And they nurture Christ-likeness rather than uh, leadership culture to me. Uh, this is a pet peeve of mine, is that pastors who begin to see themselves as leaders um, lose contact with the biblical theme of Christ-likeness and Christoformity is the term I like to use, or um, they, they, the followership, you know. Instead of leadership, let's mm-hmm. talk about followership. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- these are these are the marks of a Tove culture that stri- because of cultures form over time on the basis of behaviors, and then cultures begin to shape us to fit into those cultures, and we only stay in those cultures if we fit, and we can tell if we fit or not. Um, we need to start practicing these virtues, and over time. The culture and the church can shift toward toward Tove and st- away from toxicity. That's great. I love it, guys. Uh, I, I want to get some closing thoughts from everyone. I want to toss it over to Michael Roundtree for some closing thoughts, and then and Scott, if you would as well, just kind of give us a thought that you have as, as people are walking away, watching this video. What's one thing you want them to think about, meditate on? when it comes to solutions, when it comes to maybe identifying the culture that they're in, that kind of thing, whatever is that one thing you want people walking away thinking about. Uh, I'll start with you, Michael Roundtree, and uh, give Scott a second to think about an answer there. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I think a verse that I'm thinking about is when Jesus says, when they're trying, when people are trying to evaluate the ministries of Jesus versus John the Baptist, and they're very different, but Jesus says, wisdom is justified by our children. In other words, just look at the fruit of it. And um, I, I think sometimes, you know, you can go to a statement of faith and it looks all good. And even their ecclesiology, it looks all good. And the pastor says all the right things in the pulpit and everything seems good, but it's not so good. It's not so tove. And, uh, and one of the stories I'm just thinking about, of course, is Driscoll with the rise and fall of Marceau podcast and all that. And that repeated line that we would always hear, like, you know, there's a line of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain, you know, something like that. And I'm just, I, you know, in retrospect, it's like, oh my gosh, like this was the way a pastor was talking. Like there are dead bodies behind the bus and it's going to grow. Like that's a good thing. How is that? Like this is a shepherd who's supposed to f- nurture and feed the sheep. Like how how is this ever permissible? And, and so much of what I see in Dr. McKnight's book, I, it's like it, it was speaking right into that. But I, I do think that when I've just, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud here, but whenever I see there's a trail of broken relationships in some leaders ministry, we talked a lot about narcissism and a narcissist cannot be corrected and you can't penetrate that inner circle and so on. And what I, what I see is there tends to be this trail of broken relationships, the trail of dead bodies, so to speak. And if the outcome of a ministry is that people feel chewed up and spit out, I think about what, what Jesus says to the Pharisees, you, you lay heavy burdens on the people, but you yourselves are not willing to lift a finger. Uh, I, I think it's really important that uh, that people can observe the pastor, the leaders of the church are, are actually serving people. They're making people's lives better, not worse. People aren't. Now, if you have people in a church, people are going to get hurt. But a, a Tove church is actually fighting for peace and healing and reconciliation. There should be, instead of a trail of dead bodies, a trail of new life. 
and a tov church. And so when I say wisdom is justified by her children, like what is what is like the final outcome of like what's happening? And it, and it has to be measured in something other than church growth because you can grow a whole lot and be really unhealthy. But but actual lives that are getting better and people who are relating to that leadership culture, that that pastoral team, the people in the inner circle, they're actually staying and there's some longevity and, and there's wholeness and healing coming out of it. Those are just some things that I would look for, just kind of putting together some of the pieces from this conversation. Uh, Dr. McKnight, what about you? Well, yeah, well I'm, I enjoyed hearing what you had to say. I think you're, that's very healthy and good. Um, to me, you know, I, I, I'll be very brief here. Um, I think what we need to focus on more in our seminaries, in our churches, in the leadership's lives, in the pastor's life, is character formation. To be transformed into the image of Christ, I think we need to ask questions about how deep is my Christoformity and Christ-likeness. Hmm. And that's what we need to focus on in churches rather than Bill's, let's see, I think Steve Carter put it this way, butts in the pew, bills in the plate, baptisms in the pool, buildings on the campus, and there was another B. Uh, those, those are the marks of success in our church, and we need to transform that. A revolution of character formation is, I think, is what the church needs most. Amen. 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 I, I, I like to, man, Roundtree, what you said about people being expendable to accomplish the mission of the church. That's one thing that I've always been very um, cautious about. Like, hey, uh, your mission statement, your vision statement is so specific, it starts to exclude certain individuals from in the body of Christ uh, because you're a this church or you're a that church, and you start cutting off people like, oh, they don't fit here. Oh, they don't fit like, the mission. Yeah, it's so target unhealthy. markets, dude. When when consultants come to churches and they're like, who's your target market? And everyone's like, young families. I'm like, wah, wah. And I'm just like, hey, I want young families too. But it's, there's also Jesus focusing on the marginalized. I mean, what do you do with that? It just, sorry, you're not my target market. I mean, I just, I'm sorry. It's just business culture creeping into the church. It just drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I, think, I cut you off. Go I, ahead. No, I know no, you I'm more. with you. I, I think that when, if we, at any point in time that we think that people are expendable, that is such a identifier of unhealthy culture. Um, so I, I would just say that uh, viewing people as Christ views them as essential members of the body, even those that the scripture says appear less honorable, it's actually our job to show them more honor, right? So uh, I, I would I would be careful of, of creating systems in which we devalue or, um, I don't know, ignore, neglect certain individuals that don't fit into our paradigm of what the, the mission or our vision is supposed to be. So uh, anyway, without further ado, guys, I hope you enjoyed uh, the content today. You need to check out Scott McKnight's book, A Church Called Tove. Uh, it uh, is a wonderful book. You can pick it up on Amazon. You can pick it up on Scribe. You can pick it up on Audible. You can pick it up on Kindle. I mean, it is available everywhere books can be bought. Uh, it's a great book. Everyone needs to pick it up. And I think right now with our day and age, with culture, 
uh, people getting wounded, people getting hurt, things kind of come into light when it comes to like sexual abuse and things like that. The church needs to be on their A game when it comes to it. So if you're a, a congregant and you're a pastor, you know, you've probably experienced some of these things. Uh, it would be healing for all of us to kind of touch base on it. I highly recommend it. Go check it out. Uh, and Scott, thank you so much for coming on the channel. We really appreciate it. Uh, for those of you who are watching, you want to support the channel. There are links in the description. You can always give a one-time gift on PayPal a reoccurring gift on Patreon as well as five bucks a month to get access to extra content. And I would encourage you, if you like the content, maybe like, share, subscribe. You see the graphic there that I put up on the screen when I say the like, share, and subscribe thing. Hit the subscribe button, like the video so that you get notified when we come out with other content just like this. Uh, did I miss anything, Michael? I, I feel like I'm drawing no, it out. You got yeah. it, man. Cool. That's it. So guys, thank you. you guys, Appreciate thank it. You. God bless you guys. Have a great day. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.